So good morning. Uh, let me just add my voice. Thank you guys. Stokes, Bennett, Christian, Lily. Thank you all for your words, your prayers, your song this morning. Welcome, whether you're here in person or online. We are so glad that you're here this morning. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Jimmy. I'm part of the leadership team here at Midtree Church. For those of you who do know me, I would ask you, please hear the message and don't let this fallible person whom you know be an obstacle to God's word as uh, we bring that today. Um, I'm doing a one-off here. I'm the relief uh, pitcher, preacher, so to speak. And it's sort of difficult when you come in to pitch to one batter to figure out what do you talk about? What do you do? We do expositional preaching usually here where we pick a book of the Bible. And so you know chapter 1, chapter 2, 3, 4, and so on. And so for me, picking a topic or, or hearing what God would have me say was, it's kind of daunting, you know, because you just get one shot at it. So um, with that, a couple of weeks ago, I found myself, as I was thinking and praying through this, on a Saturday, maybe like some of you, I was watching NASA SpaceX. And I was watching Bob and Doug inside their capsule with these really glitzy, high-def images of this futuristic dragon capsule that they're in. Watch the thing blast off into space, and then with the precision of utmost technology, the booster rocket come down and land on this little bitty drone ship in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean to be used again. It was amazing technology. I, I was really kind of stunned. And, and it reminded me um, of a day back in 1969. Um, I'm reminded of Gemini and Apollo. And for those of you under 35, Gemini is not your horoscope, and Apollo is not the guy who fought Rocky Balboa. Those were the early days of the space program. And I remember sitting as an 8-year-old, 1969, in my grandmother's house with aunts and uncles and cousins all packed in front, little bitty black and white TV, watching Neil Armstrong put the first human foot on the face of the moon. And it was amazing. And it was a culmination of a dream that President John F. Kennedy, an ambitious dream that he had outlined in 1962, about seven years earlier. And it's an iconic speech, which I recommend to you. But part of it I want to share with you. He said, we choose to go to the moon. And there he is. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they're easy, but because they're hard because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills, because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept, one we're unwilling to postpone, and one which we intend to win. And so as I sat there in this event, I thought, gee, you know, what an amazing thing, the ambitious dreams accomplished. I came across in my own personal Bible reading, the book of Matthew, chapter 20, the ambitious dreams of two disciples of Jesus. And I thought, thank you, Lord, for giving me something to tie together and to talk about. And so you get to join me in the convictions that resulted from that. And so I'm going to ask Bruner to put up there Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 through 28. I'll read through that, uh, ask God's uh, uh, grace as we talk through that. So let me read that for us. Matthew chapter 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. And Jesus answered, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said to him, we're able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those who have been, uh, has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them. He called all of the disciples to him. And he said, 
you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. I pray that through the presence of your Holy Spirit that we would be able to leave behind the cares of this past week, Father, and that we would be able to hear your words and be illuminated as to the need for them to have impact in our lives so that we might be more like your Son. It's in his name that we do pray. So, as we look at this passage, just look at the first couple of verses where Mary comes up with her sons, kneels and says she wants to ask him, and he says, what do you want? And she tells him, I want my son to sit at your right and your left hand. What's the context of this? Remember, these 12 disciples have been walking with Jesus now for over two years. So in the book of Matthew, if you read through it to this point, we see that he has called them each. They've sat through the Sermon on the Mount. They've sat through miracles, the water being turned to wine, multiple healings. They've sat through 5,000 people, then later 4,000 people being fed from a few loaves and fishes. And all of this under the umbrella of Jesus' teaching. Teachings that are radically departed from the traditional teaching of the Jewish authorities of rigid adherence to the law, often just for the law's sake. So after two years, Jesus and his band of merry men are getting ready to go into Jerusalem. And this is the third time he tells them what's about to go down. I'm going to be tortured and crucified. I'm going to die, and then I will rise again. And so they've heard that. This is not the first time. But where do James and John's thoughts go? What's the next thought? Me. What about me? What happens to me after this? And so then what do they do? They go, hey, Mom. Jesus said, kingdoms come and look. Let's go. We want to ask him. It'd be better if you ask him. We want to kind of appear humble. I'm, I'm surmising, but I'm guessing this is kind of how it went down. Come with us. So mommy brings him over to Jesus, and they ask him and say, hey, you know, this is what we want. She poses the question to him. Mark's a lot kinder than Matthew. He leaves out the part about mommy bringing him there. And so we can read that, and those of us, and I see it in your face, some of you smile. Yeah, it's kind of funny. These guys just didn't get it. But that led me to conviction number one, my first, I guess, point in this sermon, the conviction that for you and I, it's important that we recognize our natural inclination as selfish sinners, because that's who these guys were. That's what they were demonstrating. And God, how much do we need your grace, right? If James and John responded this way after living with Jesus for two plus years, literally eating, drinking, sleeping, watching him day and night, and they come up with this, how much more do we need grace? So Genesis tells us, right, that man is created in the image of God. And in fact, at the end of chapter 1, verse 31, after the sixth day, when God has finished creating man and the earth, and he's given man dominion, he looks back and the scripture says, God saw everything he had made, and indeed, it was very good. But it doesn't take long. Go a couple of chapters over, chapter 3, right? A man, we find out, is capable of great evil, easily tempted to turn against the Creator, to desire glory for himself. Heck, go one more chapter, first murder. Go to page 24 in my Bible, page 24, 1% of the 2,000 pages in, 
God says this in chapter 6, verse 6. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. And what does he decide? He decides, I'm going to wipe him out, right? Barely into the book. It's like the marathon runner who crosses the start line and falls down. And he spends the next 26.1 miles trying to figure out what the heck happened and how do I fix this, right? I've been there, actually been there, done that. So this is a truth that spans time. Jeremiah 17, 9, which come up, says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And Jesus reminds his disciples of that just a couple of chapters before in Matthew 15. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. These are what defile a person. So this debate, is man created in the image of God inherently good or is he inherently evil? It's gone on for centuries, even before Christ. If you read Confucius, um, uh, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, it's been going on forever. If you take a philosophy class in college, you're going to have the Hobbesian versus the Rousseauian debate. 16th century Hobbes who said man is inherently evil, needs central government to really control him. Rousseau, father of the Enlightenment, said no, man's good. He just needs a social contract. So you're in class. What's the answer to the question? I'll make it multiple choice. Church, man is A, inherently good, or B, inherently evil? It's a trick question. The answer is neither. C, it's both. It's all. It's both. We are complex, messed up people. It's like going to the museum. If you've been to the Museum of Natural or, or uh, Modern Art, and you see a Picasso picture, and you look at it, and then you kind of... It's pretty, but it's got these lines and things, and you kind of shake your head and walk away. I'm not sure I get it, right? We are, in the words of a pastor at another church that helped plan ours, we are jacked up. We're messed up people. We're hard to figure out. And, and there's one description of this that I think captures it so well. I'm a reader. Somebody asked me last night, what's your hobby? One of my hobbies is reading. It frustrates my wife to no end, because I'll get in a book and just pick up another book and throw it at me for me to shake out of it and come to well, there's an author whose picture should come up here that I, I love to read. No, it's not Hutch, but it sure looks like him. I was amazed. I'd never looked at a picture of Robert Louis Stevenson. It could be Hutch, Scottish author, right? Wrote Kidnapped, Treasure Island. One of my favorite books, though, is The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Listen to Stevenson's description, right? his articulation of this idea. He says, it was the curse of mankind that these incongruous personalities, the good and the bad, were thus bound together that in the agonized womb of consciousness, these polar twins should be continuously struggling. If you can't relate to that, at least I know I can. I look in the mirror some days and it's like the Picasso picture. I look and go, come on, what's going on? What are you doing? That is the context. That's the background from which James and John are coming, right? And that's the background from which we come. And so how does Jesus answer them? Verses 22, 23. He says, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm to drink? And they said, we're able. He says, you will drink my cup. But to sit at my right and left hand is not mine to grant, but it's for those whom it's been prepared by my Father. So my second conviction in reading through this is that we really need, it's important for us to recognize the natural consequences of following Christ. There are consequences to our faith. 
to drink the cup, Jesus is referring to his impending torture, crucifixion, and death. The cup of his suffering, the passion of the Christ. And James and John say what? Sure, we're able, not really fully comprehending at all the implications of their assertion, their assent to that. What happens to the apostles? Some of this we know for certain. Some of it's church history or tradition. James was martyred by Herod, the first of the apostles to die. John, his brother, is the last who suffered years of exile and isolation on Patmos before his, uh, his death. The rest, Andrew crucified upside, I'm sorry, Peter crucified upside down. Andrew crucified in Greece. Matthew, we think, was stabbed or killed in Ethiopia. Bartholomew martyred somewhere in Arabia, maybe India. James, the son of Alphaeus, was stoned in Syria. Jude, we know, was martyred somewhere in Persia. Simon the Zealot, also somewhere in Persia. Matthias, the replacement apostle, burned in Syria. And Judas, the traitor, when he realized the gravity of what he'd done, we know committed suicide. Terrible outcome for these 12. Now, I recognize this was a different era, right? This was the era where Jewish leaders ruled supreme, and they strictly enforced obedience to the law. Look what happened to Jesus. The Roman era, the Roman emperor himself is a god. Failure to kneel before the emperor could result in death. And you and I think, well, okay, the nice thing is it's not the same now. We live in the U.S. of A., Right? We live, and we, we are, we live in a great place, a great country in a time that is tolerant of our religious beliefs with great latitude and freedom. Our founding fathers, imperfect, flawed as they were, uh, instituted a form of government that allows us, those principles allow us the freedom to worship. And we shouldn't take that for granted because the rest of the world is not the same. I was fortunate to travel to Romania in the mid-1990s, and I remember having a conversation sitting here like Dakari and I talking to a Romanian pastor who recounted that just a few years before under communism, the communist authorities would come in and tear down their church, take people to jail. And every time the believers would come back, put it together and continue to meet in secret until the country was finally liberated. You can go right, well, no, don't go now. Wait till after church. You can go to the Voice of the Martyrs website. One click will take you to the story of um, Deacon Jang who is a uh, Chinese businessman near the North Korean border. As of this week, he celebrated his 2050th day in captivity in a Korean jail because he was helping a, a North Korean pastor minister to the poor, needy, hungry Christians in North Korea. That pastor was murdered about three years ago. Persecution still exists. So we may not experience it to that level, but some of us have endured ridicule within our family, or perhaps discrimination at your place of work because of your faith. Not the same severity, but we are just like those believers who are persecuted. We are called to press on. Scripture tells us this, that it's inevitable, right? We're going to look at just a few briefly here. 2 Timothy chapter 3, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. John, the same disciple who didn't get it later in life, writes in 1 John, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. And then Peter tells us in his book, chapter 4, 1 Peter, excuse me. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Don't be surprised, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you ins are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. That is backwards. 
glory when you are insulted and persecuted. And, and why? Why does the world hate Christianity? Well, we've got to go back to point number one. It is the dual sinful self-centeredness, the dual nature of man. The end result of choosing the path of selfishness, the end result of people choosing to follow their own desires is that slippery slope to individual and societal level intolerance and racism, which we, as Lily prayed, we are struggling through even this very morning in our country. And even beyond that, to genocide. And you don't have to think of the classic example of Nazi Germany in Kosovo, where the cars served. There was tremendous genocide in 1995. 10 to 15 years ago in Sudan, genocide. So we have to recognize, it's important for us to recognize the natural consequences of following Christ. For us as believers here, we must stand with and pray for the persecuted church. And wherever we find ourselves, we must stand for our faith. So that is the first part of Jesus' answer to James and John. But there's more. There's more teaching. And he tells them this in verses 24 through 28. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. Now, I, my guess is they weren't indignant because they knew that they all were going to humbly serve and give their lives, right? My guess is they thought, wait a minute. Why should you be over us? Why should you two have the favored seats? Jesus calls them to him, and he realizes that all of their hearts still need some work. And he says to them, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. Couldn't get much clearer. But whoever would be great must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. And even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Conviction number three that struck me is that it is important for me, for us to recognize the unnatural call to servanthood, which is Christ-likeness. It is not natural. The Son of Man, it's a term that Jesus used identifying himself as God incarnate, God in the flesh. He came to serve, to give his life, and he commands us to do the same, to sacrifice Servanthood points us back again to, to the first point, the first conviction, right? We have to recognize our dual nature, particularly that selfish inclination. And we've got to choose the other fork in the road. But it's not just choosing the right path. Jesus says it's beyond that. You have to kill self in order to serve others. You and I cannot serve others if we're looking out for number one. Luke chapter 9, verse 23, he says to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Daily. It's not a one-time event. It's not a salvation experience. It's not a box that we check. But it is a daily sacrifice. It is hard. In Matthew, a few um, verses later, Jesus reminds his disciples in response to a question from one of the scribes or lawyers who asked him, what's the greatest commandment? Trying to test him. And he points back to the Shema in Deuteronomy 6, and he says, that's easy. The first and the greatest commandment is that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor and yourself on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. There is no room for self in those two commandments. 
The practical applications of this are enormous. There are too many for me to mention here, right? It affects everything we are and everything that we do. But let's just look at one or two. Marriage. Paul gives instruction in the book of Ephesians about the roles of husbands and wives. To submit, which means to respect, to support, to stand behind and with, he tells the wife. The husband, he says, listen, you must sacrifice you must present your wife. You must sacrifice your body for her. You must love your wife as you love yourself. Those roles of respect and submission and sacrifice, they are seemingly impossible. You do not have to be married very long to realize how unnatural that is. But that's what we're called to. There's another. Jesus says in Matthew 6, Don't lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Later he says, for what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? You and I, if our goal is to accumulate wealth, that is great for our security. And whether it's wealth or material comfort, it's great for us. But doing so directly or indirectly comes at the expense of someone else. That is not what we're called to. We cannot serve two masters. We have to serve others in spite of, really more at the expense of, self, which is, again, a hard thing. Believer, we have to examine our life. We have to recognize our natural inclination. This is our, our summary, Bruno, if you want to put up the three points. We've got to recognize that natural inclination towards selfishness. We've got to recognize and accept the consequences of a life that's characterized by faith, which could lead to ridicule or persecution. And we've got to recognize that we must intentionally practice humility and servanthood as unnatural as that is. And, and this is kind of a, a sober series of thoughts or a sober message. It's not a happy sort of thing that we have to look inside. For those of us who call ourselves followers or apprentices, my hope is that it's thought-provoking for you and me. But not just that, but that it is action-inducing, that it causes us to change. But it is not a message without hope. Let's not miss that. James and John did. If we look at the verses right before that, Matthew 20, 17 through 19, as Jesus was going to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way he told them, see, we're going up to Jerusalem, and I will be delivered up, and they will condemn him to death, deliver him to the Gentiles to be mocked, flogged, crucified, and he will be raised up on the third day. Don't miss the last nine words, the last phrase. Jesus tells them he will rise again. His kingdom has come, not in the way they anticipated, but it has come. And for you and me, we get to look at this from the other side of history 2,000 years later. We know the work's done. The tomb is empty. We know the ending of the movie before it really begins. Our position in Christ is sure. So regardless of our inconsistency, regardless of our tendency um, to have to fight against our old nature, regardless of persecution, ridicule, we can deny ourselves. We can practice lives that, that are radically different from our culture because our hope is well-placed. We're getting close, Stokes, wherever you are. There's a hymn by David, I'm sorry, Daniel Whittle. Do we sing hymns here? It's an, old, it's an inside joke. Based on 2 Timothy, and the hymn says, For I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able 
to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. So to summarize, back to SpaceX, if I were JFK, or maybe, maybe I couldn't, I'm, uh, no way, right? But if I were to talk to you guys as, and try to, to instill in you some hopeful ambition, a, a, a speech trying to instill in you the ambition to have a dream that's big for us as believers for the task ahead as we await the world to come, I might take license and change his words a little bit. And I might say this to you. We choose to live as disciples of Christ and follow his example, not because it is easy, but because it is hard. Because intentionally living this way will serve to organize and measure the best of our God-given energies and skills. Because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept. One we are unwilling to postpone. And one which, through the grace of God, has already been won. For those of us who are believers in Christ, we can live a life of faith because our hope is well-placed. And then if you're listening to this today, whether in person or on the, the live stream, if you're not a believer in Jesus, what does this mean to you? What does this say to you? How does this apply to you? What I would tell you, I would ask you to look beyond those of us who are believers because we're fallible people. Don't let popular media tell you that Christianity is a fairy tale. Those Christians are hypocrites because, in fact, we, we can be. But look beyond the people of God to God himself. Look at the person of Jesus. Read the gospel accounts for yourself. And I, my hope, my hope, and I think all of ours, is that you, like the rest of us who call him Lord, you won't be disappointed. Let me pray, and then we'll close with a time of worship. Father, thank you for these words. Thank you for the message that comes from two men, James and John, who are not unlike us at all. And Father, I pray that we would learn from your response to them how to live lives that purposefully deny ourselves so that we might be emptied, so that your Holy Spirit might guide and lead us and fill us with an unnatural ability to love our fellow believers and the world beyond so that your kingdom might be proclaimed and that your son might be glorified. And it's in his name we do pray this morning. Amen.